For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, Catherine Ferguson discusses the borderlands transformation that she writes about in The Haunting of the Mexican Border, One Woman's Journey. Find out how the Cooperative Extension Program is offering a helping hand in backyards and gardens across the state. And film writer Christy Scheel examines the heroic legend of Zorro. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. a migratory bird. I've always had a place. It is located west of the tall saguaro, south of the dry river, beyond the certainty. Before I knew that place intimately, I thought it was easy to get there. For the earliest road trip, I just threw a few things in the back and inserted the key. The ignition turned over the first time. Good omen. All thinking was behind. Now it was the doing. Did I remember my cache, my map? What if there's trouble? The hour-long drive south was full of doubt. But when I crossed the border, the smell of burning mesquite carried away the worry. We know where we belong. Beginning in the mid-1980s and for 15 years thereafter, I made documentaries in Mexico. I researched, hiked trails, talked with strangers, and filmed in the rugged Sierra Madre in the state of Chihuahua. Then I returned home to Tucson to produce, organize, and edit. Swinging between my country and the neighbor to the south was as vibrant as chili on the tongue and as scary as freedom. For years I traveled in Mexico, sometimes with a film crew or a friend, sometimes just with an idea. Most of the time I had few problems, but in the 90s, changes began to occur in Mexico and the United States that affected my day-to-day life, and I began to be watchful. I became aware that as I made my journey south, people from Mexico made their journeys north. Our paths converged, and I learned that the line on which these journeys pivot is deadly. Mexico treated me well with an occasional run-of-the-mill fear thrown in. Fear is a funny thing. When you think of fear, You think about the five-foot-long black iguana with alligator eyes, ridges of teeth, and spiked backbone. It looks terrifying. As it charges you with world record speed, you panic. But upon observation, you see that it prefers to dine on flowers and fruit. Such is the nature of fear. It is only your imagination up until the day you are eaten. In her career as a dancer, artist, and documentary filmmaker, Catherine Ferguson has had to confront fear often, and she's learned to draw upon it as a catalyst for making art. Her years of travel in northern Mexico formed the basis for her book, The Haunting of the Mexican Border, One Woman's Journey. First, I just went to explore and have fun, and I like the Sierra Madre. It's a, a mountainous area. And I met people there, um, they, they call themselves mestizos, 
but we might say cowboys. And I met families there, and I met some Raramori Indians. They are also known as Tarahumara. And when I was there, I felt really safe in that area. It, it has a reputation for being a wild area, but I learned that being a woman alone <clears throat> is a disadvantage sometimes. On the other hand, it's a great advantage, and people take care of you. What did you learn about the Tarahumara people in the history that made you interested in doing a film about them and turning your fun weekend jaunts into <laughs> <laughs> into working vacations? Oh, my gosh. That was a lot of work. <laughs> it was years and years of work. What I learned was one person at a time. I learned who this person was, and then I learned who this person was. And I just was crazy about this one man named Ventura, he was in his 70s, and he was just a delightful, brilliant guy. And we just became buddies, and we would hike trails together, and he would take me around to visit his friends, and I would get to know his family. In that getting to know him, I realized that the people were not the people I read about in books here in Tucson. The people I read about in books, they always, oh, almost always the conversation is, oh, they're shy, retiring people, and they're kind and nice and this and that. They're not shy at all. They're just, number one, they're just people. They have all different kinds of moods. But they're, <laughs> they're pretty tough guys out there. It seems like you'd have to be. It's not the easiest place to make your living from the land. No, it's impossible to make a living there. They, they just barely subsist. You know, there, there's no water. There's been a drought, just like here. There's been a drought for a decade, then the waters come and they flood, and then they have the crops die from the flood or they die from the drought. It's a very, very hard place to make a living. And then there's also a lot of downtime for people who live without money or live in poverty. And so they have a lot of time of sitting around worrying, and you fix that by having a fiesta. And so whenever they can, they have their tesuino, which is a, a corn beer, and they they celebrate every chance they get. What year did you wrap production on Tarahumara? I finished the film in 1998. At the end of that creative journey, how did that change your relationship to northern Mexico? When I finished making that film, I was a woman. When I started making it, I was a girl. And it doesn't even really matter what age I was. It was just a time between starting the movie and ending the movie. I grew up hard and fast. It's one thing to talk about poverty. It's one thing to live in it. It's one thing to visit it. I was merely a visitor, but I saw firsthand how hard it is simply to not have food. I mean, we have so much food. We have so many things in the United States. You think you, you're poor. You don't have any money. I think I'm poor. I'm an independent filmmaker. I have so much. And that's one of the issues about people coming into the United States from the country of Mexico or Central America. Honestly, we have so much here to share with people. We have an abundance of food, an abundance of place, an abundance of time. We have an abundance here to share with other people. So at this point, we're sort of talking about the late 90s. Is that right? After Tarahumara? That was back in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, I, I became aware that people were making their ways north because I saw them. I stopped once for lunch on the side of the road up on a hill, and there was a big semi-truck there. And as I looked over at the semi, I saw 30 people standing up inside the big semi, and a man ran in front and slammed the door shut. And that was one of my 
earliest understandings of people were coming to the north. What sort of impact did that realization have on you? To see 30 people standing inside a truck and the door closes and the door says fruits and vegetables in Spanish, you have to wonder what's going on and why are they hiding and why are they sneaking around pretending to be a tomato? And yeah, that changed my life. And then now, when you look around the world, people are moving across every border in the world right now as we speak the same way that was beginning to happen um, from Mexico to the U.S. People are traveling. They're crossing borders right now for, for mostly for economic reasons, because there's not enough of something to go around or because they're being killed. Explain the title of your book and why you chose it. The Haunting of the Mexican Border. The people in the United States are haunted by what happens at the border, what we do, what we see, and we're haunted by it. We can't get rid of it in our minds. It's also a place of the strangest sort of magic that happens. I don't mean supernatural magic. I mean magic between human beings, and it's a magic that is at once beautiful and and at once terrifying. When you started writing the book, were you prepared for where it was going to take you? Not even remotely. Yeah, when I first started, I thought I reverted to my young self, and I thought, oh, this will be a lark. This will be fun. I'm going to write this little book about making a little movie and the Sierra Madre and some nice people. And I got writing, and I thought, well, nobody's going to want to read this. And then I went further, and I thought, well, it's not even what the book is about. The book is about what used to be and what is now. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is so that people anywhere who read it in the world or in the United States can get a glimpse of what is happening on our southern border and what's happening across all borders across the world. We need to look hard at why are people moving, leaving their countries. And so, no, I wasn't even prepared for that when I first started writing. It just, it, it, it does change when you write. It, things change. You address fear often in your book, but it never stops you from <laughs> getting into it deeper. It never stops you from building these relationships with people and confronting and sometimes ending up fighting their battles alongside them. Um, <laughs> so I think that Though you give fear a certain amount of space in the book, <laughs> you also seem to have learned how to deal with it pretty constructively. <laughs> you see, I'm afraid of everything. In my life, I'm afraid of everything. But I also have the privilege of having a lot of time alone. So when I'm alone, I think what matters the most, and that is relationships and knowing people and the doing of things with people. There's a lot of fear around doing those things, <laughs> about around connecting. Yeah. But what else is there? That's the best thing that there is. One of my big fears now is that our political construct and our the politics of the world makes it more and more so people are separated and they are not able to get together and live and be one person to another. I would like to get back to one-on-one, -on -one, which I know is not <laughs> always possible, but that, uh, but a human connection is the only thing that counts in the universe. Our listeners heard where your book begins uh, from the excerpt that we shared at the top of the interview, but give us some idea of where the book ends. Where does this story come to a conclusion for you? 
There really is no ending. Um, I'm living and everybody else is living this story as it unfolds. We could look at it and say that the big corporations, the big governments, the um, uniformed men that are patrolling the world with guns now, that they're the ones that are winning. It seems to be that way. And yet, I wrote this little book. I'm sitting here talking to you. We're back to the one-on-one thing again, human to human. And I have to live for that idea. I have to live that it's going to get back to, or still is, human to human. As a native Tucsonan, do you think that people on this side of the border take our borderland culture for granted? I do think that we're oblivious here in this beautiful borderland. We're really (coughs) oblivious as to where all these wonderful cultural things come from. Our music, our food, the food that comes from Mexico or Central America. We're oblivious as to how that got here or still gets here. What's missing in this, when we look at our barrios downtown with the nice people, the blue walls, the pink walls, when we look at that and we're listening to our Norteño music, what's missing is smell and odor and dust, right? The things that make that happen in your life, there's the smell of sweat and there's dust everywhere covering everything. For us to have these shiny, pretty Mexican pots and cups and plates and all this shiny music and shiny food, yeah, we need to take another look at where it comes from. That was Catherine Ferguson, author of The Haunting of the Mexican Border, One Woman's Journey, published by the University of New Mexico Press. Ferguson will host a book release event from 5 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday at the Temple of Music and Art Lounge. Many people are interested in leading healthier, more sustainable lives. For Pima County residents, there's a little-known resource that can help them achieve these goals. Tony Paniagua interviews the director of the University of Arizona's Cooperative Extension, a part of the College of Agriculture and Life Science. Dr. Jeff Silvertooth, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I've been hearing of Cooperative Extension for many, many years, not only in Arizona, but in other states. What exactly does it mean, Cooperative Extension, and where does it come from? Literally, Cooperative Extension relates to the three-part involvement between the federal, among the federal government, state funding, and the state investment, and a county investment in relation to the fact that we have Cooperative Extension based with the land-grant institution, University of Arizona in this case, and then located in every county in the state. So there's that partnership among feds, state, and the counties to bring the university to the people out in every part of the state. And there's actually something quite fascinating. Uh, there is a connection to Abraham Lincoln when you speak about cooperative extension. Absolutely. And in relation to the fact, again, that cooperative extension is part of the Langren Institution, in this case, the University of Arizona, which was formed by the Morrill Act in 1862, which was signed into law in June 1862 by Abraham Lincoln which then formed a land-grant institution, a public institution in every state and territory out in the United States. There are many programs that Cooperative Extension is responsible for, 
Let's talk about some of the ones that may be more familiar to some people. We've Many of us have heard of master gardeners. Uh, how do they fit into the programs of Cooperative Extension? Master Gardeners represents a very important and a growing part of our portfolio of programs, which would pretty broaden themselves. The Master Gardeners represents part of what we call our Ag and Natural Resource Programs. It's primarily oriented towards urban gardening, urban landscape, horticulture, education, practice, and management. And it's a nice program too, Tony, because it gives us an opportunity to literally, play on the words, propagate that knowledge from the university out into the community by educating people of the community who serve as educators in a subsequent sense by joining and participating in the Master Gardeners program. It's really a wonderful program and it's growing a lot in the past several years in direct relation to the interest that has increased or developed in most communities with gardening and landscaping and where does our food come from? We've been hearing so much about the importance of agriculture and the importance of new generations of people going into agriculture. Where does your agency come in on this? Ah, great. Well, we have basically every facet of agriculture you can think of. We have a traditional and a very strong relationship with what we call commercial agriculture here in the state, both in crop production and in ranching or animal science. Then we also have relationships to all the other facets of food production, the local gardens, the small farms, the organic farming systems, all the other you know, multiple systems that are being envisioned and developed these days. We have a, a role and an opportunity to provide education, science, and service, again, extending the university and the, to the people in all facets and bringing science to bear on practical problems, just a new set of problems. It's also interesting to note, I think, Tony, that we have a couple generations coming back now getting interested in agriculture that are really two or three generations disconnected from the farm. So it's kind of an interesting rebirth, a, a renaissance, so to speak. And cooperative extension can serve in a, in a functional capacity in that relationship. Yeah, you've heard of people with backyard bees and yeah, backyard chickens right. and trying to find out more about where their food comes from right. and what's in that food. Right. Cooperative Extension, because we're connected with the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, we're a wealth of knowledge, wealth of information. It's an important point to communicate that people might not think of and know about, that they have direct access through Cooperative Extension to connect to the college, which is that source of information on all those topics. And of course, this is radio, but let's try to visualize Cooperative Extension for people who live here sure. in Tucson. The farm is right there on Campbell Avenue, mm -hmm. uh, just north of Prince Road, along Roger. That is Cooperative Extension there, right? It is Cooperative Extension, and it is part of our experiment station system, which are also fundamental pieces, collectively fundamental pieces of our college and our university. So if you go up Campbell on the east side of Campbell Avenue, right below the Rito, that's the Cooperative Extension office for Pima County. And it is surrounded by, on both back to its east and across Campbell Avenue to the west, the Campus Ag Center, which is part of our agriculture experiment station system, which we have locations and, and sites in various parts of the state, Yuma, Maricopa, Safford, V-Bar-V, Ranch in the north, et cetera. Now, but that right up on Campbell Avenue is the one that's closest to the campus. We call it Campus Agricultural Center. All right. And finally, if you're talking to somebody right now as they're driving in their car or listening to uh, you at home, and you want to say, what is Cooperative Extension to them, or why should they care about this organization? What would you say to him or her? It's your direct window and your, your direct line of connection to the University of Arizona, your bridge and your link to the University of Arizona, even if it doesn't relate directly to the programs that we, we provide. We can provide that linkage, that connection, that window into the university.
And how do you provide that linkage? Various ways. You can call, walk in the office in any county, online these days. Any of the above will work, and we're glad to work with you. Dr. Jeff Silvertooth, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Two bits, four bits, six bits a peso. All for Zerto. Stand up and say so. <laughs> The 1981 comedy Zorro the Gay Blade was not the most authentic version of the character ever brought to the screen, but it helps demonstrate the longevity that has made Zorro an important influence on heroic fiction. Although there hasn't been a Zorro film since Antonio Banderas wore the mask for a second time in 2005, more adventures for the man in black are probably not far away. Here's Chris DeShiel. My first awareness of Zorro was from a TV show I watched as a kid. A masked man in a cape, an expert swordsman fighting injustice. What's not to love? Over the years, I naively assumed that Zorro was originally a figure from the folklore of early Spanish California. Actually, he was created in 1919 by a New York pulp fiction writer named Johnston McCauley. It so happened that Douglas Fairbanks, one of Hollywood's biggest stars at the time, read Macaulay's first Zorro story in a magazine. Up until then, Fairbanks had specialized in madcap romantic comedies that showcased his charm and athleticism. He decided to try something new with this character, and the result was The Mark of Zorro, directed by Fred Niblo, released in 1920, and a huge hit that created a whole new film genre, The Swashbuckler. Don Diego Vega, the son of a prominent landowner, has returned to his father's California ranch after getting an education in Spain. He acts the part of an apathetic, spineless young nobleman, but secretly he rides out as the heroic masked avenger Zorro, championing the cause of the peasants against the evil and corrupt governor of the province. The love interest, played by Marguerite de Lamotte, is being wooed for marriage by Don Diego, whom she finds ridiculous. At the same time, she's fascinated by and falls in love with the dashing mystery man Zorro. The film is silly and seems childlike in its simplicity, and in addition, I must say, Fairbanks' appearance is unimpressive by later movie hero standards. He did a sequel five years later called Don Q, Son of Zorro. By that time, he had advanced much further in the art of swashbuckling, and Don Q is generally better and more entertaining than the first film. Zorro's true ancestor was, of course, Robin Hood, the father of all outlaw heroes. A new element, however, in the success of the Zorro story is the secret identity. This is a relatively new idea. In fact, Macaulay was inspired by The Scarlet Pimpernel, a play and a novel by an English author, Emma Ortsey, about a hero who rescues aristocrats from the terror during the French Revolution. In his real life, the Pimpernel pretends to be a weak and foolish twit someone that no one would suspect. With him, and then with Zorro, one of the most enduring comic book themes was born, the superhero hiding in plain sight as an ordinary person. They seek him here, they seek him there. Those Frenchies seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven? Is he in... <laughs> that dimmed, elusive Pimpernel. <laughs> oh, yes, it's a poem. <laughs> Another element is the mask, which I believe is Macaulay's own innovation. At least, I'm not aware of another masked do-gooder prior to Zorro. 
Later there was the Lone Ranger, another Western hero invented by Eastern writers, this time for radio. Countless masked characters have followed. Zorro appeared in serials and B-movies for a while until Fox remade The Mark of Zorro in 1940, directed by Ruben Mamoulian with Tyrone Power in the title role. I'll make it short and save you fatigue. The story is handled tongue-in-cheek for the most part, which is appropriate, and the production values had advanced considerably since Fairbanks' time. The movie features Basil Rathbone as a villain, always a plus. We have a hero with us. And his sword fight with power is top-notch. This is a very slick Hollywood entertainment, a film of visual elegance and panache, the one Zorro movie you should see if you had to pick one. Then there was the TV show, produced by Walt Disney in the late 50s, with Guy Williams as Zorro. The broad strokes became even broader, and the audience aimed at was considerably younger. The series was quite a success, and it had a catchy theme song. Out of the night when the full moon is bright Comes a horseman known as Zorro More recently, Antonio Banderas starred in a couple of popular reboots and now there are rumors of new Zorro projects on the horizon. When all is said and done, this character, with his mask, his bullwhip, and his habit of using his sword to mark the letter Z on things, is an over-the-top creation, one that you really can't take seriously. His main significance, I think, lies in his influence on later characters. Bob Kane, the creator of Batman, cited Zorro as his inspiration. Zorro was a Latino action hero invented by Anglos who had very little understanding of Latino history. Was California in the Mexican era really a place where the masses were oppressed by cruel governors and landowners? Well, California had its share of political conflict and even a few revolts, but the romantic picture we get from the Zorro movies is pure invention. Now, I understand that it wasn't meant to be historically accurate. I even understand why, before Banderas, all the actors portraying Zorro in the American versions were Anglos. That is, unfortunately, American history. But I can't help but wonder if this story about a light-skinned nobleman fighting to free the poor, simple peasants of California reflects a kind of paternalistic mindset towards the Mexican people. Americans thought they were bringing the benefits of civilization to the places they conquered. They called it manifest destiny. In fact, Chicanos were pushed aside in what used to be their country, relegated for the most part to the bottom of the economic ladder. And no mass crusader in sight. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>